I'm going to do something really dangerous here, and that's apologize for last week going so long. <laughs> that's dangerous because I really could do a whole two hours here on what's left, and I'm going to do my best to not go as long as we went last week, but um, this is uh, quite a full story, and uh, thankful for the opportunity to speak of it. As, as Rich mentioned, there's lives of believers that are not in Scripture. They don't have the same authority. That is, we don't have the Word from God and how to understand and to think about such people as such, but we do have um, the historical record. And there's, I think, good reason, even if we look at Daniel 11, to say that that historical record is vital and God is sovereign over it. So, uh, we want to be safe and free from what some would call adulation. That is to uh, find sort of super saints that we raise up and revere in a wrong way. Uh, William and Mary Nib were sinners as the rest of us and could talk at, certainly about weaknesses that they had and that others saw. But uh, without all of that aside, there's a tremendous opportunity to learn and to be encouraged in the walk of faith, and so we continue that forward. Uh, I do not know how many are among us, well, may I just ask, you were not here last week. I see your hand, like, real courageously high. Okay, thank you. Um, I think then just a few uh, ideas to bring us in to this story. Oh, boy. Uh, could you, can you advance me to, I thought I was where I was going, 46? Let's get to that. Um, we talk of uh, the life of William Nib. He, Nib. he was born in Kettering, England, and uh, left for Jamaica with his wife Mary, his new bride of just a month. He was 21, we don't know her age, but she was younger than he was. And they went to Jamaica never to see their homeland again. The uh, story of William's mother and what's recorded there of her, uh, as she sent off her son Thomas to Jamaica, missionaries did not live long. And that proved very true with Thomas, who died just three months after landing in Jamaica. He accomplished enough in those three months to be a solid foundation that uh, even perhaps you could argue today shows itself. But of course, it was his brother, William, that the uh, committee did not think was probably worthy of being a missionary, or they, at least they didn't trust him wholly. But he followed his brother to Jamaica with his, his wife, and thinking then again of Mary the mother, not Mary the wife, uh, his mother Mary, and realizing that she was now sending away a second son, very likely to death in Jamaica. Just the sacrifices that were made at that time because shipping was so difficult. William Nib, 1803 to 1845, uh, the first picture after his first visit to England and the second at his last visit to England. He did, of course, then get back to England because of uh, his ability to lead, and that leadership uh, put him in England, as we've uh, thought of that, just a little bit more background, but 4,600 miles across the sea and back was obviously took months at a time to make that journey by ship. But he ministered, he and Mary, in Jamaica for a number of years. 
and uh, landed first of all in Kingston, Jamaica, where he was the headmaster of a school. Uh, and then um, after a couple of short pastorates, landed in Falmouth. You remember that kind of dramatic reception of him uh, by the mostly uh, freed slaves. There are many slaves that would be, have been working on Sundays, but some were associated with the, with the church there. And just a, a dramatic reception of him as their pastor. But we remember the, the revolution that took place. I think I have this here. So, sorry, before I get to that, uh, just, a, just briefly for all of our memory and to bring some up to speed, remember these three pieces of the historical background. First, the British Empire is wealthy, it is powerful, it is worldwide. They say the uh, sun never set on the British Empire. That is, it was everywhere, and it was very powerful. And William Nibb tapped those resources. It was also very established and had a very a sense of pride and uh, decorum. Uh, Jamaica was the wild, wild west. Jamaica was very different than England. Uh, there, the sense of justice was different. The sense of decorum was different. It was... Uh, very, a lot of intrigue between the two. Jamaica being a colony that uh, served England primarily for what? It was for sugar. And to this day, it's the chief export from Jamaica, sugar. The Baptist Missionary Society is the, uh, the, the people who determine who goes where and when in Baptist missions at this time coming from England. Remember that society was formed in uh, the, the very area where William Nibb grew up. They were particular Baptists, that is, they would have believed in a more Calvinistic sense and with very uh, strong sense and urgency to spread the gospel uh, through the world as they were able. But uh, their, their reputation is very, very important to the British Empire at this time and to the Baptist Missionary Society. So we see things happening here that make no sense to us because we don't care as much about reputation as they did. We probably not enough, they probably too much at that point in time. But everything, you had to prove yourself, your reputation was uh, far more important than anything else that you owned, possessed, or did. And so uh, we see this playing out in many, many ways. But the first... Um, See what I have here. A couple of pictures. This was painted uh, the year that the Nibs arrived in uh, Jamaica. And remember Port Maria. An interesting story here tonight uh, where they will land here at Port Maria. Uh, just a picture of a, a plantation uh, and then of an interior estate or plantation at the geographical center with the slaves uh, living in this, the, this housing here behind on the hill. That would just a uh, picture that kind of gives us a sense of what was going on. But these pictures taken in the, in the range of William Nibb's life. So this is the, these are the people that he went to Jamaica to reach. Very similar, may as well have been some of the people that he led to Christ or were part of his church. But uh, these are... Um, Sugar plantations, and there was other things, but uh, sugar was so important that the um, Jamaicans could not even feed themselves. It was so important to get sugar to England, to Britain, 
uh, to put in their tea that they have 18 times a day. They had to get that there, uh, and in order to get that there, they didn't even have enough time to raise their own enough to feed the, the, uh, the island, so they would import that from the United States at that time. But I, I know this is really small, so I'll help out those that can't read it um, in just a little bit here. But this is the first visit then to England. Now we're going to jump right in, into the Nibs' second stint in Jamaica. The Nibs returned to Falmouth nearly 15 months after the liberation of the slaves. So, so when he left Jamaica for that first visit to England, the slaves were, there, there was still slavery in the colonial uh, British Empire. When he comes back, liberation has taken place well before he returns, and he had a very significant hand in it as he traveled all through the British Empire, speaking to thousands in, in large crowds, and eventually the slavery was ended. So he's coming back with that uh, reception. We have to understand that as he comes back to Jamaica, most of the island absolutely despises him. They, they, they want him dead, and they're mortified that he's actually coming back. They viewed Nib and his sword as having blown up the system of oppression by which they made their money and lived in, in wealth on the island. Failing to kill him, they labored in the press and every other way to get him deported back to England. That's where they wanted him. Ironically, England was the very place where Nib could do the most damage to them, and he did. As he spoke against slavery, again, I, I don't want to repeat too much, but remember last week that his understanding was the end of slavery was just the right thing to do, but secondly, the end of slavery would have a very significant benefit to the growth and health of local churches. You have people who are coming to Christ in droves because there's a literal awakening taking place in Jamaica. But many of these slaves are un unable to come to the uh, Lord's table on Sunday morning, to gather with the church on Sunday morning, to hear the Word of God preached because they're in the fields being forced to work. Mothers are working all day long. Children are not learning to read the Bible. And so he argued on many levels that if slavery's ended, the church of Christ will grow, it will be healthier, and we'll be able to see greater results for the mission that we're pouring so much time and attention into. But, as I said, the enemies then wanted him there. They found out that was a bad idea. The a man who collected his memoirs, Hinton, says they had flung the firebrand from their hearths and it had fallen on the powder magazine. But as you can imagine, to the newly liberated slaves, Nib is returning like a conquering king. When he left, they were in slavery. Now they are free, sort of. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But as the ship neared shore, what did the Nib see? I missed this point for those that weren't here. There was a revolt by the slaves that Nib did everything he could to fight and didn't even know about it until the night before, sent members to plantations to say, don't burn the plantations, don't be involved in this revolt, but he was blamed for it, he and his missionary uh, colleagues. So uh, in that whole process, uh, his church was burned he was imprisoned. He was threatened with death many, many times in many, many ways. 
But he comes back now, and as the ship is nearing land, the first thing they see is the ruins of the chapel at Falmouth. The second thing that they see are people. As the ship docked at Port Maria, emancipated slaves ran along shore until they reached the pier. Then they carried William in their arms down the pier to the land where Mary described what with what Mary described as tumultuous rejoicings. There was singing and dancing and weeping for joy that the Nibs had returned. The beloved pastor of this church, some had traveled as far as 25 miles to receive the Nibs that day. And at 6 a.m. on the first Lord's Day following their return, the temporary shelter at Falmouth was full of believers gathered for prayer. By the start of the worship service at 10 a.m., people overflowed the shelter. After the service, Nib gave the first of what was going to be many lectures to ex-slaves about how to live in freedom, the responsibilities now that were new, the opportunities that were new, the pitfalls that were there. He reported later that he spoke, as he spoke on that occasion, I quote, they were as still as death. After the evening service that same day, two African women presented their newborns to Nib and expressed their thanksgiving that because of his efforts, our infants were born free. He spoke briefly to them, dismissed himself, and found a place to weep tears of joy. It was one of those moments, I think, as a pastor, you just say, Lord, I'm ready. I go home right now. What a, what a tremendous moment that had to be. The Falmouth Church continued to prosper. God was working in unbelievable ways. Some members were walking 20 miles on the Lord's Day to reach church. And what joy now to see whole families of Africans worshiping together during the morning services. Three years to the day that Nib was jailed, and it looked like all was lost, they set in place a new, uh, uh, the dedicatory stone of a new and larger chapel. In April of 1837, 6,000 people attended to dedicate that building to the Lord. Providentially, while the chapel was being rebuilt with money that Nib had secured in England, so remember, Parliament got behind him, not only ending slavery, but Parliament also provided money for the restoration of these chapels because the militia that was there had burned them down. So they provided money, uh, private money was raised, the Baptist Missionary Society gave money, and so this new chapel was built in that place and during the time that it was being built, a great irony and sweet providence, the church met in the very courthouse where Nib had been imprisoned. Three years earlier, he stood in the dock with a bayonet held menacingly at his chest, being threatened with immediate execution if a soldier would just poke that bayonet. They told him that they would kill him the next day at a firing squad, they told them that if he laid his very ill body down on the ground, they'd shoot him in the spot. In that very room, the church is meeting. And astonishingly, astonishingly, all but one of the magistrates who voted to permit the church to meet in that building were members of the Colonial Church Union. 
The colonial church union, if you remember from last week, was that union of Anglican state-supported pastors and plantation owners that had done everything they could to end William Nibb right, during the time of the Revolution. They had voted themselves to permit the church now to meet there. Although the apprenticeship system was slavery by a different name, the tide had turned. So, uh, again, repeating last time, uh, the apprenticeship system was saying the slaves are free, but since they are property owned by the masters, at least in the past, they have to earn their freedom. They have to pay for their freedom. So the system, those in power, what they did was they made the, the cost of liberation very high, the wages very low, and when a slave said, I'm not going to be part of that system, they booted them out of the only house they had. So it, it's, slavery is, is over. They are free, and yet they're not. It's all slavery by a different name. But Nib went to work on that as well. More significantly, the Jamaican awakening continued to flourish. You just, your heart just has to thrill to hear these things, that these things really happen. But Nib baptized 384 people in 1835 alone. This is a picture of 135 people being baptized at one time. They're doing it in sets of men and women, which is kind of interesting. There's so many of them. This is half as many as he baptized one day, one Lord's day. The, the people that are coming to Christ are just coming in droves and all over the island. The church at Falmouth grew to 2,000 in attendance. 1,800 of those 2,000 were liberated slaves with 1,000 people being considered inquirers. There's 1,000 people they are saying, you can't join the church yet. We need to discern if you've really, truly come to know Christ as Savior. And 1,000 people were wanting to join that were not yet permitted. The Falmouth Church started six other churches. We say, well, they just want to get big, and how many people can they get? They started six other churches in just a matter of a few years from their own members. When the Nibs arrived at Falmouth, 50 slaves could read the Bible. Now 600 could do so. And members were teaching plantation workers to read so that they could read the Scriptures themselves. In connection to the Falmouth Church, prayer meetings were held in nearly 70 estates, plantations. And among Baptists, members grew from nearly 11,000 in 1831 to nearly 25,000 in just seven years. So that God is, is uniquely at work bringing so many people to Christ. Well, are these just African previous slaves who are just jumping on the bandwagon and this is just kind of an exciting thing? Obviously, the proof is in the change of life. There are many evidences that a true awakening was taking place that these were genuine conversions. Crime dropped so precipitously that some jails were empty. They even closed one down for six months because it wasn't needed anymore. Nib invested much energy in building chapels, helping others start new churches across Jamaica, as well as schools 
to educate children. He also began to buy large plots of land on which free villages of former slaves began to spring up, countering the plantation owners who were kicking them out, and they, had, they were homeless. They had nowhere to go. So they were, he, this is a sketch from that time, but you see kind of down the middle column there, just rows of very simple houses. He began to, have, uh, to participate in that process just to give people a place to live. Yet amidst all this progress, the enemies of the gospel did not quit. They took no breaks. Nib was routinely slandered in the Jamaican newspapers until his death. The inevitable decrease of sugar production, which was really the, the problem of the apprenticeship program, was blamed on the Baptists. They were blamed for the revolution, though they had no part in it, and that can be clearly demonstrated. In fact, they were brought to trial and no one ever got anything to stick. But also, the loss of sugar production now was being blamed on the Baptists. Uh, Nib and his colleagues, because of your teaching, you are causing freed slaves to not work anymore. And so we're not getting our sugar for our 18 cups of tea a day. And that made a lot of people angry. Of course, it lost some people some money. Well, the real problem was the apprenticeship system. And the fact that it was just an ongoing slavery, and there, as people didn't participate in that, uh, it caused trouble. And the, the argument was against the Baptists, but also against the freed slaves, that they had now become lazy. You look at the preaching in the churches, the focus, that wasn't the case. But at any rate, the, the attacks continued. People were hired to make false charges against Nib, and they did everything they could, even hiring juries to act against him. Nothing ever stuck, again. It's, it's like you just hear Jesus here, don't you? It's like looking for witnesses to agree together on what he had done wrong. But they never were able to, to, to prove anything, any wrongdoing whatsoever. Um, on a number of occasions, Nib had to then appeal to the Baptist Missionary Society for financial aid to fight the litigation that just continued to, to face them. But the opposition came not only from the godless press, but also a Mr. Blythe of the Scottish Missionary Society took strong umbrage with the growth of the Baptist churches and other missionaries joined in on the criticism. They insisted that the only answer to this massive numbers of people that were coming to Christ, the only answer had to be that the Baptists were not vetting their new members. They weren't really working to see if people had come to know Christ as Savior. Nib addressed this attack at some length. He followed a careful process of welcoming baptismal candidates, including many who remained inquirers for years until interviews proved their testimony of faith. They also would uh, reach out to the community and ask people, does this person's life adorn the gospel? So rather than cutting corners, they actually had a, had a very rigorous system by our standards. He said that his rule of thumb was this, I have never received into the Christian church one person whom I dared reject. I have earnestly prayed to God for direction, and I have seen persons go from my door weeping as if their hearts would break because I would not receive them. 
What a day <laughs> where you have people who long to join the church and are not permitted in because there's not been enough time to demonstrate that they truly have an understanding of the gospel. The process, the Falmouth Chapel practice was so thorough that there were cases of some people who had waited a decade before they were admitted to the membership. Now, that wasn't many, but some for 10 years persisted in saying, I want to be a member before the church received them. Some allowances are in order, I think, due to the sheer volume of converts during this awakening, yet there's no evidence of spiritual neglect in this regard. And Nib was very careful to defend his colleagues and his church's practice. At the end of the day, of course, the proof was in the results again transformed lives, gospel witness, warm affections for Christ. Another proof was the faithful practice of church discipline among the Baptists. Again, what a different day and what a different scene this was. But they reported that one out of ten members were placed under church discipline. And that nearly every one of those so placed under discipline repented and were restored. We have the exact opposite situation in our day. But that's where they were. Another proof, uh, let me move to this. Nib defended his flock to detractors with these words. I do not believe there is a race of Christians on earth who rely more entirely on the atonement for salvation or who, considering their circumstances, more truly adorn the profession they make. So the, the large numbers of converts and baptized individuals was ridiculed by churches that weren't seeing that type of result. And this was his answer. While spiritual revival flourished, the ex-slaves continued, however, to suffer harsh treatment under the apprenticeship system. Brutal floggings were routinely administered. And one of the things that, that Nib fought was this harsh treatment. Most notoriously was the treadmill. This is hard to even think of. But there was this, this treadmill, this, this wheel that would spin slowly like a large hamster wheel. And the people keeping their balance upon it and holding on to that bar were whipped in large numbers. So it wasn't one person tied to a stake, but a number of them uh, in that place on, on a treadmill and being tortured in this way. He did what he could to appeal to England to stop this. Nib continued to report these atrocities and even defending members of his own assembly who they would show him the marks on their backs. But there was some house cleaning of his own to do, for there were several members of the Falmouth Chapel who participated in the apprenticeship system as employers. Nib called these members to cease, and they did, to the great rejoicing of the church. Difficult for us to understand the economic loss that that would have entailed. And yet, I think also hard for us to understand how those individuals responding to their conscience and to the call of their pastor rejoiced, and how the church rejoiced that they had so responded. 
Due in part to Nib's dogged efforts, Parliament ended the apprenticeship system two years earlier than proposed. Five years to the day of liberation, the apprenticeship system was also ended. August 1, 1838. Well, you can imagine the pro-slavery establishment, the power brokers in Jamaica in particular, seethed with hostility toward Nib. He was destroying their wealth, their privilege, their power. Meanwhile, the churches in Jamaica pulsated with joyful zeal for Christ and his church. This was true of every gathering, but none so dramatically as July 31st, 1838. At midnight of that night, the apprenticeship system would end. And the Falmouth Church gathered for a watch night vigil to wait till midnight when it was they were truly free now. As the hour approached, Nib reported later that the church was as still as death. As the clock struck midnight with a flare for the dramatic, and he had some, Nib yelled out, The monster is dead, the Negro is free. And the congregation burst into loud exultations. William held aloft his one-year-old son, James, to see the joyous tumult. And the next day, the church buried a coffin to symbolize the death of slavery. But as we see that father holding that one-year-old boy to see this, it reminds us of yet more bitter trials for the nibs. The reason he was holding up his son James was because his son William had died at 12 years of age. Coming just nine months after the death of another son, Thomas, who was two to three years of age, a little over two, the loss of William was an indescribable sorrow to the nibs. William had placed great hope upon his namesake, and there were strong evidences that the son had the father's spirit. William spoke of his son as his brightest earthly hope, but his death snuffed out any such hope and grounded William and Mary once again in the faith. That their hope rested in another kingdom. In a heart-wrenching letter, Nib spoke of William's death as, I quote, a bitter, bitter trial. In another letter, he admitted that William's death was, again I quote, the heaviest stroke my heavenly Father has ever visited me with. But, but it becomes me to be still and know that he is God. He wrote also, Only a few days before he died, he went with me into the pulpit when I said, My dear boy, I hope you will preach the gospel here when I lie under yonder tree. Ah, little did I think that in one short week I should have to lay him under its shade. We'll return to the point. But from this point forward, Nib's work shifted to helping 
those who had been liberated from slavery, shepherding them on their very wobbly legs of newfound freedom. They, uh, when, when you live in slavery, there's all kinds of things you don't have to think about. You don't have to deal with. It's all dealt with for you. Your whole focus is the labor of your body to do what you're told each day, but you don't have to think in the same way. And so he tried to help his church to understand how they needed to live. But as the church celebrated and positioned itself for development, Nib's enemies just continued to plot against him. As with his Savior, his enemies thought, the only thing we can do to this guy is kill him. If he's out of the way, maybe things will go better for us. And time does not permit, but I mean, you could make an action movie out of this. How he avoided death and how they tried to kill him in so many different ways, but God spared his life. Another thing during this second stint in Jamaica that developed was a desire to send the gospel to Africa. Did William Nibb resist these efforts for members individual of the church and individual believers there in Jamaica to go to Africa so that his kingdom could be built up? By no means. In fact, he led the charge and offered himself and his family to go to Western Africa. He advocated for this mission with the Baptist Missionary Society's committee, promising to supply missionaries. The committee rebuffed the idea at first. They, they just, it cost a lot of money. They had all the power to decide for or against. And I think they were very for it as far as an idea, but just not practically at this point in time. But there was also no confidence that missionaries would be received in Africa. They had to weigh the idea that the missionaries they sent might be killed on the shore. They didn't know. So they, they did not uh, respond right away. This leads then to, and it's going to go faster as we move along here, but uh, um, the second visit to Britain to clear the reputation of Baptist missionaries and to promote missions to Africa. This is now his mission on this second trip. Again, this is individual thought he'd never see his homeland again, but he is again risen in, uh, to such leadership position that he goes back to Britain in one sense, it's maddening that he had to do so, but he had to defend the reputation of his colleagues. The unrelenting slander of the Jamaican press had proven at least minimally effective. Remember, reputation is everything, and the internet doesn't exist. So you have to go to Britain and convince them in person that these charges are not real. There's no substance to them. So he took with him two daughters, Catherine and Anne, and while Mary remained in Jamaica with James and a newborn girl named Fanny. Taking the girls to England was an investment in their education and enculturation in British ways. Well, as we've come to expect, uh, heading across that ocean was never uh, a real safe enterprise, and this trip really proved that point. The ship ran aground in a storm, and was so beaten by the waves that William knew he was dead. He tucked his utterly exhausted daughters in bed, expecting that they would finish the night at the bottom of the sea. He put them in bed. There was a relative that was with him, and he stayed up the entire night waiting for death to come at any moment. Can you imagine just sitting there, just knowing that with the next wave it might crack the ship in half, and you're gone. 
and your daughters are sleeping there in bed and you're thinking about what your wife and the two babies with her, what will come of them? How will she respond? So he agonized all night over that, but God providentially freed the ship. Uh, We don't know how, but somehow it lifted off of where it was caught and they went on without incident and arrived uh, in England for this second visit. So the girls are enrolled in school now and William busies himself again traveling about Britain. Once again, opposition arises from within, uh, from in Britain. A certain Charles Metcalf leveled strong criticism against Baptists for what he deemed was their excessive political involvement in Jamaica. They had lost focus on the gospel, he insisted, which is really amazing when you consider how many people were being baptized and added to the church as they were building chapels about as fast as they knew how to build them. But Uh, He said that they had become entirely politically driven. Nib persuasively countered. He reported objective evidences of slavery's end and how, or or of the uh, influences of slavery's end and how it contributed to spiritual prosperity of the once enslaved families. He also argued that slavery's end was a benefit to society. It was actually financially beneficial, and he made this case very well. He also advocated then, for that, on that second point, for missions in Africa. Providentially, God used slavery and evil, being first of all captured usually by some type of warriors in Africa, and there would be infighting there. They would capture the, uh, the other side, the other tribe that they were fighting, sell them, to slave traders who would bring them across the ocean. This had ended by now, but this is how they got here. This is how uh, this all uh, took place. And, and in that whole process, God providentially used it to see many Africans come to know Christ as Savior in the British Empire, serving or in the Americas. But what Nib was now arguing is with slavery's end, the transatlantic slave trade had ended a long time before, now colonial slavery was over. It's time now to go back to Africa and take the mission there and to reach Africans directly with the gospel. Well, his, this second trip was not in vain. In just five months, he traveled 6,000 miles, attended 154 meetings, and spoke to 200,000 people. He successfully tamped down criticism of Baptists in Jamaica and created momentum for missions in Africa. But perhaps his greatest accomplishment on this trip was that he came back with four single women who were volunteering to be school teachers four missionary couples ready to lend their efforts in the harvest of souls in Jamaica. And so 12 individuals to join him who were very willing to die. They may not last. And as he would travel back, he would stop at some islands, and in certain places he would find mass graves of missionaries. Many, many gave their lives because of the, the, the diseases of that tropical environment. They went knowing that. He came back with 12 people. Well, the Nibs in Jamaica again. January 1841 to March 1842, 
William left Catherine and Anne in England for schooling. He arrived in Jamaica in January. And while the enthusiasm of this return was not paralleled by that first return after his first visit, people lined the road for 15 miles to celebrate his return. And it took him two days to greet all the well-wishers who had come from various parts of the island to receive him and welcome him home. On his first day back in the pulpit at Falmouth, 3,000 people attended the service. The Jamaican awakening, what had happened? It continued on. Nib baptized 234 converts on a single Lord's Day and 145 on another. In one day, 234 and 145 new believers. God was continuing to move in unusual ways, a reception of the gospel among particularly Africans. Happily, opposition from the plantation owners and the House of Assembly that had just about killed him and had incarcerated him for no reason, that all happily subsided. But sadly, the void was nearly filled again by Christians, especially a sustained attack by a Presbyterian minister named Blythe. Blythe leveled frivolous, unfounded charges. He said that the Baptists were guilty of rum-drinking, but also pressuring slaves, or now freed slaves, for money. More serious was the charge that their rapid growth was owing to a lack of care in vetting new members coupled with the pastor's obsessive concern with their abolitionist cause. These are attacks that have been heard before. Ideas have been heard. Some, some were even um, charging Nib with baptizing people naked. I mean, it just, it, whatever they could get to stick. They just continued to come up with ideas, and it got actually weird. But these attacks grew so loud and so persistent in just 15 months that Nib had to go back to Britain again. Thank God for the internet. But this time he had to travel alone, leaving Jamaica March 21st, 1842, after just 14 months in ministry there. So the third visit... As to the charge of undue political activism, Nib explained that the Baptist missionaries were indeed continuing to decry atrocities in Jamaica, and they would continue to object to sin where they found it. Of late, they had taken up the cause of officials luring immigrants from places such as Ireland to work in the fields. The defense wasn't just of the African, but now is of Irish immigrants who were being lied to and deceived and making the trip across the sea, once they got there, they basically now were enslaved. And they were dying in droves of tropical diseases. In debunking Blythe's charges, Nib was able to bear witness again to the evidences of God's continued blessing on the mission in Jamaica and thus commend the committee's fruitful investment there. On this trip, William was blessed to baptize his daughter Catherine, and to join the 50th anniversary celebration of the Baptist Missionary Society in Kettering, which I'm sure was a thrilling opportunity for him to be back in his hometown and to think of what God had done through these years through this missionary society. Just 12 pastors working together at the beginning, and so much good had now been done. Now to another stint a fruitful one, these three years in 
Jamaica. The Nibs returned without incident to Jamaica on August 4th, 1842, or William did, soon after the Jubilee celebration of the Baptist missionaries in Jamaica was held. From our perspective, this effort seems a little overdone. Uh, We would not think of things this way, but I'll I'll get back to that in a moment. But a temporary... so, So we're celebrating the mission of Baptists in Jamaica, and they build a pavilion, a temporary pavilion. I mean, think warm climate, so you don't have to have walls and windows and things like we have here. But 9,000 people this thing held just to get together for one gathering to celebrate these years of ministry. 500 members of the Refuge Church, closely associated with the Falmouth Church, gave an entire day to cut down 100 trees for the construction of this facility. 12,000 people attended, including 2,000 horses. And uh, they had to care, the resources to care for all these people. It wasn't, you know, go ahead and run out the restaurants now. They had to provide the food for all these people and all these horses. So isn't that over the top a bit? But let's remember, there's no internet. People you talk to, you got to be standing in front of them. And the movement that you're part of has to be like physically in one another's presence. Otherwise, it's just news that travels really, really slowly. So I think probably there's some issues there that maybe were overdone. And on the other hand, who are we to say? Uh, it was a time of great rejoicing and, the, and bringing everyone together solidified the work that God had been doing. It brought it to attention During this stint in Jamaica, Mary became so unwell, she planned to travel back to England with the youngest nib child, James, to recover her health. And it would seem then, perhaps, I'm drawing an inference here, but probably also to recover his health. Sadly, five-year-old James died before the trip. I mean, just think of this. She's going to take her five-year-old son to England and unite with her two daughters, and she has to make that months-long journey alone to just burying a child. And William is left in England to grieve this loss on his own as well. Tremendous sacrifice. Well, the Africa mission continues to progress After much effort and financial sacrifice, a ship was finally sent from England to Jamaica to pick up missionaries. It's like, okay, William Nib, you said you'd have missionaries to put on this ship. Here's your ship. And he did. A band of missionaries embarked from Jamaica for Africa on December 1st, 1843. Now just think of it. I remember our work in Lithuania working with a man that had, whose father was a, a leader in the military that had come in and conquered uh, Kaunas, Lithuania. And he, the son now, was going into the same town to evangelize and establish a church. I mean, it's a little bit of that kind of a thing here. The Africans had, Africans had been brought from Africa to be enslaved And now, having come to know Christ, we're going back to Africa to proclaim the gospel. 
The captain of the ship permitted Nib to the honor of steering the ship out of the harbor. And Nib rejoiced at the realization that his ministry was blessed of God to influence several of those who made that journey to Africa. But back in Falmouth, Nib's church faced a new challenge. Free now to move and seeking cheaper plots of land, many of the now former slaves began to leave Falmouth to find a place of cheaper land where they could live. And in 1844 to 1845, the church's attendance dropped by 800 people. In 1845, in order to combat the migration, Nib purchased tracts of land uh, close to the chapel in order to retain members. His effort was successful. The village of Granville was established, named in honor of Granville Sharp, the 18th century abolitionist. During uh, this season, Nib faced incessant demands upon his time and um, upon his wisdom. He wrote to a friend that I have a few hours in the morning, and after that I never know if I'll have any time to myself for the rest of the day. There's so many people were coming to seek advice from him. And some of this was, much of this was spiritual advice, but some of it was not. It was just people who had never lived in freedom saying, I, I think there's an opportunity to start a business here. But I don't know. Do you, can you give me any advice? So his time was very taken up. He was beginning to very much wear down. People would walk, however, miles to see him. And so he always felt that he needed to give them time. Slavery was ended. The apprenticeship system was ended. Nib's pro-slavery enemies had been thwarted, but the offspring of the serpent continued to attack. What was the new trial now? The new trial was to tax the church out of existence. Remember, Baptists are a separatist group That is, they were not participants in the Church of England. And so they did not have state support, and so they could be taxed, and they were. Remember that. (laughs) I won't be surprised at all if I see that day come here. As a result, the Baptist chapels suffered such severe financial pressure as to bring them to the verge of ruin. And this led to Nib's fourth visit uh, to Britain. The idea here was to secure financial aid from the committee to help the churches survive. He set sail for Jamaica in March of 45. The major accomplishment of the trip was to secure these funds, which he was able to do. He made made it clear that the financial troubles were not owing to the folly of the Baptist churches, a foolishness, but rather to the House of Assembly imposing these unjust taxes. He decried the oppressive measures of the Jamaican authorities, the opposition from the Church of England in Jamaica, and advocated for self-supporting churches. He did not want them to become dependent upon the support of England, but he said, we're in a situation here, we need help. So members of the Falmouth Church built, um, sorry, moving ahead, he secured that money. Uh, But at the same time, even in evidence that the churches were covering their own financial responsibilities, 
the church of Falmouth built the Nibs, a very fine house. Uh, this was the couple that was homeless after the revolt, that found uh, a place to live with a former slave, uh, but now the church had built them a two-story home that doubled as a hospital uh, for ailing missionaries and a hotel for those that were traveling in and through Falmouth to meet with him and for other reasons. But the church also fully paid for their own chapel, which now seated 2,500 people. But most Baptist churches on the island did not have uh, quite the financial success that the Falmouth church um, realized, and so the, his efforts to raise money was very important. That brings us back to the last segment in William's life in Jamaica from August to November of 1845. William returned to Jamaica on August 1st to tumultuous rejoicings again, quotation, as Jamaicans celebrated the 12th anniversary of liberation and the 7th anniversary of the end of the apprenticeship system. He was received by a procession of people stretching over a mile, including a thousand horses. But his reception would quickly pale in comparison with the reception for which he most longed. Just three months after arriving in Jamaica, he ministered to the Falmouth Church for the last time. I'm not tearing up about Nib, but about our home. That's where he wanted to be. That's where we should want to be. The day began at 6 a.m. with prayer at the chapel. A guest speaker, Mr. Abbott, preached the morning sermon, which after which Nib baptized 42 new members. Mr. Abbott took ill, however, that afternoon, and so William was, had to preach that evening sermon. He spoke on 1 Timothy 1.11, on the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's his last sermon. It was a fitting parting word to a flock for whose salvation he had labored for nearly 20 years. Nib walked home that night exhausted, with no protection from the rain, and it was a, a drenching rain. And on Tuesday, Monday, he visited some homes in Kettering, and on Tuesday he fell ill. On Wednesday he displayed symptoms of typhoid fever, and on Friday symptoms of yellow fever. He died at 10 a.m., Saturday, November 15, 1845, at the age of 42, leaving behind a wife and three daughters. Nib was known to speak eloquently when defending the defenseless, but he was also known to speak with unusual eloquence when speaking of heaven during the Lord's Supper comments. Mary later reflected on these Lord's Supper meditations and said, I used to fear... There was too much of heaven in them for him to be long an inhabitant of earth. By the standards of missionaries in Jamaica, he lived to be an old man. Forty-two was a long time to make it. But by the standards of his wife and daughters, in the estimation of his congregation and fellow missionaries, he died far too soon and with so much unfinished work for Christ's kingdom. His funeral at Falmouth was attended by 8,000 mourners. 
some traveling from as far as 40 miles away. I mean, 40 miles, we're talking walking or on a cart, uh, pulled by a horse, something like that. Maybe, I mean, maybe some took a horse, but that would have been uh, unlikely as they would have been bringing more than just one person on a horse. And so 40 miles is a long distance. A number of plantation owners attended the funeral. And amazingly, at that moment, the Jamaican press lost its teeth. It never said a negative word about him again. These are rare and glorious seasons in the history of the gospel. The large numbers of response those following Christ and lives being transformed and churches growing rapidly, these are rare moments. In the seven-year period, 38 to 45, the last years of Nib's life, some 20 other Baptist missionaries baptized, he and 20 others, baptized 22,000 people. Jamaica is 146 miles wide and about I don't know, 21 to 30 miles the other direction. And they baptized 22,000 people in seven years. Nib himself baptized between five and 6,000 converts during what is really a fairly short ministry. Again, this is half of the numbers. The picture here is it's stated to be 135. And that's half of the number that he baptized on one Sunday, at at the highest Sunday. He was personally involved in the establishment of 35 churches, 24 mission posts, 16 schools in Jamaica, and several villages to house freed slaves, dying at 42. His missionary friends, church members, and loving family laid to rest a generous man filled with unusual love for others. He was known to rise at midnight to travel as far as 30 miles away to visit a sick colleague. I mean, colleagues were dropping left and right, so this happened often. As I mentioned, the house that the church built for him doubled as a hotel for traveling missionaries and a hospital for the deathly ill Nib often borrowed from his own resources, one time selling his own furniture as a means of helping the chapel survive during that financial crisis imposed upon them by an unjust government. But his legacy, above all, was the establishment and the edification of local churches and his loving efforts to build up the flock for which Jesus died. He is known today in England and in Jamaica as a liberator. Because unbelievers can get behind that. But as his brothers and sisters in Christ, we know that there's so much more that was accomplished. As important as that was. While he was never revered as a great expositor of Scripture, I think that as we would look at the polity of his church, we would have some concerns. There are times when he probably defended his reputation too vigorously and in unwise ways. We could point the finger easily at anyone. But he taught his church the gospel. And he loved them deeply and they knew it. 
His biographer Hinton suggests that many in the congregation of Falmouth would have known little more than the basics of the gospel. But they knew it well. And it transformed their lives with godly living and warm affections for Christ. Nib's powers of persuasion were unusually strong. He often moved the audience to tears of repentance, to exuberant joy, and even to uproarious applause from time to time. He committed, he, so committed was he to the Word and so fearless, he once preached through an earthquake without pausing. God's got this. <laughs> Just keep on going. Next verse. Uh, Lionel Smith, the governor of Jamaica from 1833 to 1836, as far as I can tell, the only governor that supported Nib and at great cost to his own reputation, he may have summed up Nib's legacy about as well as anyone when he said sarcastically and yet truthfully in his mind, I quote, Jamaica is comprised of black Christians and white savages. That wasn't a shot at the white man. That was the Gospels had that kind of effect. And the white power brokers, the few of them there as plantation owners and militia and the government, were keeping the system in place. Jamaica is comprised of black Christians and white savages. William Nibb took on those white savages, those wolves, out of love for his black flock. A century earlier, Thomas Jefferson, himself a slave owner, said, that, said this of slavery, We have the wolf by the ear, and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. William Nibb grabbed the wolf of Jamaican slavery by the throat, and he did not let go until it crumbled lifeless at his feet. For those of African descent and for all of the downtrodden of Jamaica, William Nibb spent his life as he proclaimed the gospel. There is to this day, as I understand, uh, the grave site behind the Memorial Baptist Church, William Nibb Memorial Baptist Church, and a monument that was erected by, it says, emancipated slaves, missionary colleagues, friends, and admirers of various creeds and parties. Those are my words. But that's what's on the uh, monument to the left, both of these nearby the Falmouth Church. As evidence of his enduring influence on the 150th anniversary of the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, Nib was posthumously awarded the Jamaican Order of Merit. He was the first white male to receive this award, the country's highest civil honor. How ironic. In my research, I found a website dedicated to slavery in British history. It showed a painting of African slaves fighting regimental troops, and under the picture it read this, I quote, Abolishing the slave trade is a history that belongs to black rebels. Put that together with the reality in Jamaica. Those who led that revolt accomplished nothing. But that's who's remembered. As we've seen, at least in Jamaica, the black rebels were useless. It was the gospel's transforming power in the lives of African converts that led to liberation. Not only temporarily, 
but eternally. To the charges that the Jamaican awakening was not real, that it was just a social movement, let us hear again closing words of defense from William Nibb. One day, Nib visited a dying African woman in her hut. She was utterly bereft of all creature comforts. Passing her days in agony on the floor of her hut, which she was unable to leave and unable to afford any professional care. Nib recounted inquiring about her salvation. And we'll end with this report on that visit. He said, after questioning her, I asked if she was afraid to die. Her eyes sparkled with delight. No, Massa, Jesus, him die for me. Me no afraid to die and go to him. Him too good. And Nib writes, Oh, thought I, this is religion. This is real faith. Here is a poor slave with scarcely any comforts who has been lying for a year in this hut and can talk of nothing but the goodness of God. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder of the life of faith. We are awed to think of the sacrifices that were made. We pray, Father, that you would, in your goodness and mercies to us, allow these thoughts to edify, to sanctify. We know that we do not set our eyes on William and Mary Nib. We set our eyes on Christ. But we thank you for this heritage of faith that through the ages people have given their lives for you and made tremendous sacrifices and served faithfully. May we strive to do the same in the place where you have placed us. We thank you, Father, for your goodness to us in this journey of memory and pray, Lord, that we would faithfully serve this same cause as we head to this same kingdom. We will thank you for what you're pleased to do. In Christ's name, amen. Is there any announcements? Anything you've got to do? Oh, how can I miss this? Please be seated. And it is going to be really short because you're going to be asking this. How many children did they lose? This is the, this, William and Mary Ann were twins. She died at day, 10 days of age, he at 12. Catherine and Anne survived her father. We don't know. I don't know anything more of them. It takes some unusual research there. Though one of them did become a missionary, I think in Africa. Is that right, Jake? I think that was right. Andrew Fuller died in England on one of their visits at 15 months. Thomas, at just over two years. James, at five years. And Fanny survived her father. Five children of eight preceded their father to glory. What a tremendous sacrifice. Okay, sorry. You had to sit for that. Let's stand once more. <laughs> and I'm all messed up here. I forgot I had that in there. Oh, man, I got more.
There, there, I, I, I knew, I'm looking more at the clock than what I got here. There's a William Nibb High School today. Anybody know the most famous graduate? Not anybody that wasn't at the pastor's seminar? Anybody know? Okay, anybody? Usain Bolt is a graduate of William Nibb High School. Isn't that great? One of the, one of the fastest men ever. There is a William Nibb Memorial Church in Falmouth today. That's the inside, and that literally is it. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>